0: Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. Great to have you with us again in this week's episode. But Philip is away on holidays this week, and I've managed to secure a very able replacement in Dr. Chase Kuhn. Kuhn? Kuhn. I've never known how to Kuhn. say Coon. Kuhn. Like a raccoon. Like a
1: raccoon. It's, it's very flattering when I Chase say Chase Kuhn. Yeah.
0: Okay, excellent. Welcome, Chase, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tony. I've got a lot of respect for Chase. We're good mates, and he's a lecturer here at Moore College. He lectures in doctrine and in ethics. That's correct. Yeah. But you've been off on study leave these last several months, and I've been babysitting your ethics class.
1: Yeah, making it better, I'm sure, is actually what you're doing. I'm really Improving my ethics class, that's right. I'm sure
0: that's not the case, but it's been great fun lecturing and interacting with your students and building on all that you taught them in the first half of the year. But this idea of study leave sounds like a great lark to me. What do you do during study
1: leave? Well, during study leave, we get a chance to dive a bit deeper into the research that we try to stay engaged with throughout the normal course of our employment. And so I've been working for the last four to five years on a book on ethics. And so for the last four or five months, I've been writing on ethics and it's been... A real joy for me. Yeah, really, really joyful time. Fantastic. What what sort of book is it? Like Ethics, I'm interested already. What, is, what yeah. sort of book are you working on? Well, you and I share many common interests, Tony, but Ethics being one of them. And what I'm writing about, in short, is trying to help Christians really have confidence that there is goodness and that we can know what is good for our lives. So I'm trying to help relate our beliefs about God to how we think about ethics in the world that we live in, whether... We're thinking about them as Christians or even thinking about how to engage with non-Christians. I want Christians to have real confidence. I think a lot of Christians cower a little bit. They get nervous telling people that something is right or something is wrong. It's almost as if that's the chief offense that we could ever give somebody today. But I don't want people to be shy about the fact that we think that there really is a good order to the world. And thats something that God has given to us.
0: So it sounds like you're connecting goodness, the goodness of God, and the goodness with which God has made the world, God's good purposes. Yes, with right and wrong.
1: Correct. What a strange thing to do. Well, it's a biblical thing to do. It's a wonderful think. thing to do. Yeah. yeah. And the title is, at this point, at least, it's provisional. It's—it's it's, it's not too surprising. It's called God the World and Good, or God the World and Goodness. So I'm really trying to connect those dots. How, who God is relates to how he made the world, and therefore what we think about what is good in the world.
0: It's really important because I think there's a tradition in Christian ethics and in Christian thinking about morality, and I think I grew up with this to some extent as a young Christian, that God's commands, his his moral revelation of what is right and wrong, is just kind of like a rule book. There are certain things that are thou shalt, and there are th- certain things that thou shalt not, and Of course, we want to obey those, and those are important, but that was kind of the sum total of my understanding of ethics. There are things I was supposed to obey God and do, and there's things I was supposed to not, but the idea that it might be connected to a bigger reality about what
1: was actually good probably never occurred to me until much later in my Christian life. I think I'm much the same. And so I think I've mentioned to you the kind of outward-facing, I don't want us to be shy out in public that we actually believe that there is right and wrong that accords with goodness, but... I actually want us to see goodness as something beautiful, and that actually, when we submit ourselves to Christ and live with Him as our Lord, that is the best thing possible. That That is actually the most beautiful way to live, the most satisfying way to live. And so, the book actually, you know, spoiler alert, the book finishes with that beatific vision that the righteous will see God. And actually, we will be before the Lord where the only thing left then is good. That's it. And that's a wonderful vision for our future when Christ comes again. I'm really excited about that. It's kind of a way in which ethics can be good news, right? Yeah.
0: Because uh, in some ways, I think we're used to thinking, or, or even sometimes apologising for the moral requirements of the Christian life, is kind of like the fine print. Mm. Yes, you get eternal life, which is fantastic, mm. but unfortunately, there are a few rules you have to follow. So, yeah. you know that it's a it's bit of a bit of a downer, but look, it's a small price to pay.
1: Yeah. for <laughs> I've never done a study of this, but I suspect there's a history of evangelism where, and I know you've been quite involved in evangelism, Tony. But I suspect there's a history in evangelism where we thought we'd just dangle the good things and then we'd kind of give the fine print after the fact. So, we, you know, we kind of hook them in the bait, the old bait and switch, you know, here's eternal life. Now it's going to mean, you know, the next 50 years, your life's going to be terrible and you're going to have you to, have do to give up all this stuff and follow all, all these the rules. fun things go. Yes. That's it. Yeah, we're actually I think eternal life there there's something significant about eternal life in the present that actually knowing God in Christ makes the world that much more wonderful even as it gets harder. And I think that's how Paul can rejoice in for example suffering for the sake of Christ because he sees it as in one sense participation in Christ. It's something really spectacular. He gets to be more and more like his savior Jesus so that he can know and behold that resurrection hope that he has. And I think Yeah, that's the promise of the Christian life. There's something very sweet about that in the face of sometimes very challenging things. Yeah, because not every experience of our lives is an experience of the
0: good in that sense. Like sometimes we experience the bad. Yeah, because um, that's the nature of our, of our fallen world. Yeah. But the idea that there is a good, a real objective created good, mm. a good that resides in God Himself and that He's imbued in all His creation and all its, its wonder and its moral order, that we can kind of be set free to participate in that, understand it, live mm. in it rightly at last, mm. in right orientation with our good Creator. Absolutely. It's why ethics, in that sense, it's why the Christian life is good news. It's a liberation
1: to live well. Certainly and i think that's the the freedom that we know yeah. as we have new life in the spirit we are actually freed to live in that good life and I think that's wonderful. It is wonderful. I'm looking forward to this book. Well, thanks, Tony. I am too. I'm still writing it. So still I'm writing it. It's I'm not quite the there end. yet. Okay.
0: Well we're nearing look- the end. But we'll look not forward there
1: yet. to that one. But
0: I asked you to come on today as a special guest, Chase, for Two Ways News to talk about you know you're just such an author. Your most recent book is a book that's just come out. Yes. And that I hold an advanced copy of which in my hands. It's
1: exciting. It is
0: exciting. It's a beautifully bound little leather volume and it's called Waiting for the Christ. And the subtitle is Advent Readings to Focus Your Heart and Mind on Jesus. I'm recording this in early November. I think it's going to be available in stock here in Australia around the 20th of November, sometime around then. But I wanted to talk to you about this because why would you write a book like this? Advent Readings to Focus Your Heart and Mind on Jesus.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I can be gut honest with you, the first reason why I wrote it was for me. Every year I get into Christmas and I think, you know, I just really love to go into Christmas time with purpose. And somehow, year on year, the most important thing about Christmas, that is Jesus, gets crowded out. In America, it was crowded out for me by a lot of the commercial influences of, of thinking about shopping and Christmas lists and whatnot. Here in Australia, I think it gets crowded out more by by social happenings, that we're so busy at Christmas time, moving around and having parties and everything else, which are wonderful, that I just miss focusing my heart and mind on Jesus. And I undertook this project in the initial days just to help myself do that. But as I talked to my wife about it, it was a great chance for me to try to serve many people that I know and love, first and foremost, the people in churches here in Sydney, but even more so, people around the world that I know that that have eagerly wanted to fix their heart and mind on Jesus. A little anecdote. We were in Bible study a couple of years ago here in Sydney, and heading into Christmas, it was about late November, my wife was saying, you know, in the past I've done these Advent devotionals, and they've been really good for me. Who here would be interested in me picking up an Advent devotional for you? There were about 15 people in our group, and I think at least 12 of them put their hands up and said, I would love that. I'll transfer your money tonight if you'll buy me one. So, I mean, it was almost the entire group was just hungry for something to help them day on day, heading through the Advent season to... Think about Christ. And I thought, well, it would be a great way that I could serve people that I love through writing something like this. It certainly resonates with what you're saying. I think I, I've
0: come through the busyness of family life at Christmas time and all the hoo ha, all the events, all the end of year events, all mm. the school things that are on, all the end of year gatherings, not to mention the family stuff and the preparation. It almost, it's like Christmas becomes a season that you kind of grit your teeth and endure. Mm. Because, and I just want to get to the other side of it, yeah, when I can relax, <laughs> yeah, that's right, and this great this great moment in the Christian year where we pause and think about the incarnation of the coming of jesus, and yeah. as as you say in your book, it also as advent does kinds of makes us think of his next coming as well. That just passes me by completely. I don't have time or focus for that. I'm just Mm. trying to get through this thing. And I end up feeling quite, almost quite negative and resentful about the Christmas season instead of joyful and, uh, and appreciative of what the season actually marks. And you talk about marking the season.
1: Yeah, I do. I think what Advent affords us, Advent is that season, roughly the four weeks leading up to Christmas. I mean, that's just a simple way to remember it. The four weeks leading up to Christmas where we are anticipating the coming of Christ And so, in one sense, I guess devotionally, we are marking something really important has happened in history. I mean, something that altered all of history. It was the high point of history that Christ came. And we are marking as well, not just that it was a historical fact, but that actually because of that fact and the promises that God has made to us, we are anticipating another coming of Jesus And so Christmas gives us that sort of dual emphasis. It gives us a moment to mark that he really did come and he really is coming again. And we live in expectation of that hope. And this is a way to hopefully help us get focused on that.
0: Well, what better thing to do in the midst of a sometimes distracted and distracting season of the year to set aside a few minutes every day to read the Bible? That's right. is essentially, as I look at this book, what you've done, you've basically got a little Bible reading for each in four parts over those four weeks. And what's the goal of each kind of reading or what's the structure and nature of of how it works?
1: Yeah. So I've given effectively about 10 minute devotionals for every day. I think that's what it'll take most people to read. Even I could fit fit in 10 minutes. Yeah. I mean, when you hold the book in your hand, thankfully it's not intimidating. It's not a long book. It's about a hundred pages long or so. And there's um, a little over 25 readings in there. If you include the introduction and the preface and postscript. What I've tried to set out is I've included the full text of the Bible passage that I'm focusing on for the day because one of the things that frustrates me with devotionals is they give you a passage but never quote it. You have to open your Bible somewhere else, find the passage, then read the devotion, and you just sometimes end up reading the devotion, miss the passage, or yeah, I wanted people to have the text right in front of them so they could refer to it. I offer a very short reflection afterwards and then about a one-line prayer, a one-sentence, maybe two-sentence prayer. So that there are some succinct but hopefully meaningful, heartwarming, and also challenging scriptures reflections on scripture that will, I hope, help people think about the Christian life in anticipation of Christmas.
0: And so, it's for who? Who's it? Who you expect to to, yeah. to use this resource, and how would they use it?
1: Yeah, I've aimed it at Christians in churches anywhere around. So I hope that people like even my daughter, who's a young teenager, would read it and benefit from it. I hope that my family that's a bit more nominally Christian, maybe in America, would read it and be edified and maybe excited again about Christ. I hope that Christians that have been around church and maybe have been more disciplined even at Advent season will find this a refreshing and maybe even different kind of devotional for them at Christmas time too. So the four parts that I lay out in the book focus on, first of all, anticipating Christ's arrival. So the first section is called Preparing the Way for Christ, where we look at a lot of the prophecies that come predicting and telling of the Christ that will come. Then we talk about the arrival of the Christ child, and we really focus on the incarnation of the Son of God. Then we talk about waiting for Christ's return, which is really emphasizing our lives in the present moment, in between times, that is, between Christ's first and second coming. And some of the things that means for us, like grieving in hope, or thinking about mission, or setting our minds on Christ even when we can't see him, waiting watchfully, I guess is how you'd say it in terms of what Mark says at the end of his gospel. And then the final section is on the return of Christ, what it will actually mean when Christ comes for us again, when he will perfect the creation where all things will be made new, where evil will be eradicated, and we will know the real joy of his presence fully and finally. So that's the four sections of Scripture before, the arrival, after his coming and waiting, and then the final arrival of Christ. And so those are the sections of the book.
0: That's really cool because the coming of Jesus, the arrival, the incarnation of Jesus, sometimes when we think of Christmas and we see popular or sometimes slightly shallow presentations of the meaning of Christmas – It's all about baby Jesus. It's all about the the stable and and the wise men. Perhaps some Old Testament prophecies of that. And it's almost like the story stops there, as if it stops with baby Jesus. Mm. Whereas Advent traditionally, biblically, and and in your book it seems, which is wonderful to see, sees it not just as a story about baby Jesus, but as about the coming of the Christ and the Lord. And so to prepare for that and think about that is to think about
1: his whole mission, to think about his whole coming and life and what he did, and to think about his coming again. Yes, absolutely. And what I do in the introduction, actually, I talk about why the Son of God became man and stayed a man. So I've I've had many conversations with people over the years about thinking almost as if God's Son takes on flesh for a season once he's died and resurrected. When he goes back to heaven, it's as if he, you know, leaves his human presence behind and just goes back to being God. Well, he never stopped being God. And now, since the incarnation, he'll never stop being man. And that's remarkable. I mean, that's really remarkable to think about what that means for us in terms of how we are welcomed by God and what Christ did for us, what the Son of God did by taking on flesh and keeping flesh even now into the entirety of the future. That's a wonderful promise for us. And so the book, again, explores a bit of that throughout.
0: Yeah, that's wonderful. I was thinking maybe it'd be good to get you just to read one or two of these reflections, just sure. to give us a sense of them. Yeah, we'd um, I would love to. I was glancing through the, the pre-release copy I received, and one that stuck out to me was on day five, you do a really lovely little reflection on the Song of Mary, the Magnificat as it's known traditionally, which is a classic Advent reading. There's the preparation for the coming of Jesus, and you do a fantastic
1: little reflection and devotion on Mary's song, and I wonder if you'd read that for us. I will, thank you. For this day, the reading comes from Luke chapter 1, and I read verses 26 to 38, and then 46 to 55. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The Annunciation of the birth of Christ is one of the most magnificent moments in history as it signaled the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. After years of waiting for a king and a savior, Mary the Virgin would conceive a child by the Holy Spirit who would be the Son of God. Here the prophecy of Isaiah 7 verse 14 would be completed. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the Virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us in human flesh, would take David's throne and reign eternally. With this great announcement of the coming king, an important question arises, to whom does God show mercy? Mary's response to the Annunciation and to her famous words of praise, often referred to as the Magnificat, give us the answer, it's a strange thing to think about magnifying the Lord. I find an old fisherman's trick, one that I've used many times, helpful in thinking about what Mary does in this passage. Whenever a fisherman is photographed after catching a fish, instead of holding the fish close to his body, he'll hold the fish closer to the camera. Now, this, of course, doesn't make the fish any larger, only to appear larger. Here, Mary holds up many wonderful truths about God, especially about the mercy he shows in faithfulness to his promises. As Mary holds up these truths, God is glorified, and held in greater esteem by all who hear or read. And so as we consider the Magnificat, God is more highly esteemed in our hearts because of the mercy he has shown us in sending his Son. Mary gives us three main reasons that she magnifies the Lord. First, she magnifies the Lord because he looks upon the humble. Mary is moved because God has taken notice of her, a nobody, looking upon her humble estate, her low social status. In effect, Mary is baffled that God has taken notice of her. Why her? The answer, well, there is no obvious reason. We need to be careful to see that she isn't being chosen because she's humble in a virtuous sense. She may have been humble in this way, but this isn't what the passage is telling us. Mary is overwhelmed by God's grace. Why should she receive favor? A word which means grace from God. Grace is a favorite word for many of us, but often not because of our real grasp of the concept. In so many areas of our lives, our aim is to gain status, and the status issues from our achievements making us somebody in our social circles, professions, or the broader community. We're well-educated or trained, or have a specialist skill, or a high rank in our profession. Perhaps we own a business or have wealth. Or maybe our well-curated social media profile gives the appearance of success. All of this is how we've shaped, we're shaped by our culture to relate in the world, which is why status is so strange when we think about who we are before God. If we think all our achievements and networks of relationships give us social status, what gives us a status worthy of being noticed by God? The answer is nothing. This is in part what makes Mary's song of praise so moving. In choosing Mary, God looks upon the humble. For her, it was a special favor. She carried the Son of God in her womb. But in looking upon her in her lowliest state, by extension, God looks upon us. Mary rejoices in God her Savior in verse 47. And in sending His only Son into Mary's womb, God sends His only Son into the world for us and for our salvation. God looks upon our lowly estate. Why? There is no reason of merit that we can give. It's grace. Second, Mary magnifies the Lord because He's merciful. We've asked to whom does the Lord show mercy? The answer is given clearly to us in verse 50 His mercy is for those who fear Him. Fear has always been one of those strange ways of thinking about relating to God. We shouldn't put fear in a negative category when thinking about God. Fear is utter respect for God's authority. He is sovereign over all people, all places, all times, and all circumstances. In other words, to fear God is to know that he is the rightful ruler over our lives. Indeed, all things. So fearing God is really respecting him for who he is. And respect God as he is, we must then relate to him the way he determines is appropriate. Finally, Mary magnifies the Lord because he remembers. God does not make empty promises. Mary recognizes that the Lord has kept the words of promise that he made to her ancestors, like his promise to Abraham in Genesis. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is only one of a long line of promises God made to his people. Now, in the gift of Jesus, God kept his word. He helps his people Israel who have been waiting in faith. Luke one fifty four tells us that this is in remembrance of his mercy. God keeps his promise to show mercy. And his promise still stands today and will stand forever. It's a promise for all peoples, all the families of the earth. This is a promise for you and for me. To whom does the Lord show mercy? Mary magnifies God because he shows mercy to the humble, to those who fear him in accordance with his promises. He has shown grace to Mary, and in that act of grace, he has shown grace to the world. God has promised to show mercy to all who fear him. And as a prayer and reflection on this devotion, I say this. Heavenly Father, you are faithful to your promises. I've seen your great mercy and the gift of your Son. I pray that all honor and glory be given to you as I rejoice and magnify your holy name. I pray these things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Thanks, Chase. That was encouraging and wonderful to hear. I particularly liked how you thought about what magnifying means. It means to make something bigger, right? To make something larger to increase something. And it is often a puzzle. How does how does our soul increase? How do we increase God? How do we make God any bigger than he is? Mm. It's not him that we make bigger. You can't make God bigger than himself. But as you say here, it's like, holding the fish up and saying, look, <laughs> look, what,
1: look what he has done and look how great he is. Mm. It's taking a closer look in one sense. And rather than making him bigger in any real sense, because he can't be made bigger, he becomes in one sense larger in our hearts and minds as we offer appropriate praise to him. And, and that's wonderful. And, and as it should be. It's kind of what praise is as well. Praise is advertising God. It's declaring
0: how wonderful he is by all his works and his actions and his deeds and his character and his promises and his mm. keeping of his promises and as you tell people about that as you extol and describe and revel in that and proclaim it which is sort of what mary's doing here she's singing about what god has done for her in her lower state you're just burnishing god's reputation you're saying you're making god bigger in people's minds by showing all the wonderful things he's done. And in particular here, you focus on his grace. And his grace to Mary, was there kind of an indication here? I just wondered, as you were talking about Mary and about her receiving of grace and her humble estate, there's been a tradition, of course, of seeing Mary as almost a model, almost as if she earned her place in the the history of salvation by what an exemplary person she was. But as you point out, that's not the way grace works or that's not what the humility in this passage is.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, Mary is wonderful in our minds and in history and in the biblical record. And she's wonderful because she responds in faith to the word that God delivers to her, which in many ways then is a model for us, that if the Lord is declaring a promise or making demands upon our lives and calling us to certain things, we respond in faith. That's the life of faith. Um, And Mary is exemplary in that way. But Mary is not sinless in the way that we think about the sinlessness of Christ, And I think a lot of confusions come around that. We can talk about this another time, I'm sure, around what was required for the Son of God to be born in flesh. And I don't think it was required that he had to be born into a sinless woman, but rather what makes him so wonderful is that he was conceived by the Spirit of God.
0: And it's hard to think of Mary thinking of herself as sinless given this song. That's right. She's praising
1: God for a savior. (laughs) That's right.
0: And the the way that you tie that into the ancient promises that she's singing about the fact that what's happening now that's been announced to her and is about to happen is the culmination of this great history. Yeah. Which is what the other Advent readings that you, you dig into, Isaiah and some of the other ones and some mm. of the other readings, Zechariah, some of those great prophecies of God sending his light, sending his son sending his servant to become the shoot of Jesse who will rule forever and so on. She, all this is kind of bouncing around in her song, isn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. Which is really wonderful that Mary knew the scriptures, knew the promises, and could identify with the angel's declaration to her of what was happening, this climactic moment in history. Wow. Which is why she, I think, is so overwhelmed. Wow. God is answering our prayers that he would fulfill his promises. And he's allowing me to be part of that. How wonderful.
0: Which, as you point out, is, is our
1: response. Wow, yeah. he's allowing me to be part of this. Yeah. The promises that God has made are real for me. And now as we tell of Christ, we are telling of the realization of all those promises. This is what we've believed. And as we tell of Christ coming again, we're telling of the promise that still remains. He will come. Chase, if that's a little taste of of
0: what it's like to kind of just pause each day and think about the promises of God and their fulfillment in Jesus, and not just the fulfillment in his first coming but in his whole mission, his whole life and death and resurrection, his rule as a man as a human, his mm. rule as the king and his coming again if If that's a little taste of of what your book holds i I think I'm looking forward to getting my copy when it comes out. I've been told it's coming out in just a couple of weeks' time by the time you hear this dear listener i'm hoping it will be available if you go to the matthias media website matthiasmedia.com.au you can order it um, now when you're hearing this and hopefully stock will be there if it's not there it's going to be there within a day or two and you can receive your copy and you'll you need to get hold of it because you want to read these four weeks of readings leading up to christmas or give it to some friends or do it in your small group or do it with your family
1: yeah And I have to say, I'm not trying to just advertise it, but I really want to say that Matthias has done such a lovely job with this volume. I mean, I think it's such a handsome book, the way that it's bound in leather and has this beautifully embossed sort of gold leaf print on the front and on the side. I think they're hoping that people will be excited to give it as a gift as well, because my hope is that even as I began reading these now that I've seen the book in print, I'm holding a sample copy in my hand. I've been so excited to reflect again on these passages, and I'm hoping that some people that might get it and read it this year will again be really glad to return to this book again next year and reflect once more again on these truths that we really cling to and maybe even hand it on to somebody else that might benefit from it. So that's my prayer.
0: Well, you were saying that you did this for yourself initially to market the season and prepare for in your own heart and mind for the season and to think more positively and more spiritually about the coming Christmas season. And I just want to thank you on behalf of all the readers who will benefit from this that it will be a service for all of us. I'm certainly looking forward to getting a copy and having a different Christmas experience this year when I'm not hassled or resentful or bored, but when I'm using the time to think about the coming of Jesus, which is... a
1: a great thing to always do. Yeah, thanks, Tony. I'm praying about the same. And if, if we can all give, you know, 10 minutes a day or so in the lead up, I think it'll be a richer Christmas for just that.
0: Thanks, Chase. Thanks for writing the book. Thanks for chatting about it with us today. And dear listeners, thanks for being with us again on another episode of Two Ways News. Great to have you with us again. And do get in touch and let us know your experiences of Advent, of Advent readings. And if you get hold of Chase's book and have a read of it and you want to send in some feedback, please do that as well. Chase, we usually end up our Two Ways News episodes with prayer. I'd love you to
1: pray for us. Would you pray? I'd be really glad to. Thanks. Father, thank you for everyone that's been listening. Thank you for the work of Two Ways and for Tony hosting me today. And we pray, Lord, in anticipation of this coming Advent season, that you would fix our hearts and minds on Christ Jesus, that our eyes would be fixed on him in heaven where our hope rests, where when he returns, our life will appear with him also. So please, Lord, help us to really think about Jesus, the Son of God in flesh, who came for us in our salvation. May we honor him appropriately this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen.